focusing on the pain that we've gone through, avoidance isn't going to get us the result that we're actually looking for. It's just not possible. Hello, and welcome everyone to Reclamation Podcast, a Be Emboldened initiative. I am Naomi, the founder and executive director here at Be Emboldened, and we exist for those impacted by spiritual abuse by providing support for the prevention of victimization as well as re-victimization. We desire to create a place for people to ask the tough questions and to heal. Today, we have Anna Kitko back on. I don't know if you heard her previous episode with us. If not, we will link it below and you can go check it out. She's also a mentor with Be Emboldened. So you may have heard of her or seen her posted on our website for that reason. But she has a master's of psychology of coercive control. Or wait, she is this... Anna, clarify for me. Are you a student for the master of psychology of control? Yep, yep. And I would have clarified I've got my my last year. I've got two semesters left. So close. Yeah. (laughs) And I just actually yesterday, this is not going to release, you know, so it won't be yesterday anymore by the time everyone hears it. But I did get official clearance yesterday that I am graduating in a couple weeks. So congratulations. It's coming. It's coming for you, girl. It's coming for you. And it feels really good. Yeah. Great Britain. (laughs) There's like a, a, the delay is like eight months. So like you function as graduated, but you don't get to know. <laughs> it's insane. Anyway. That's I'm awful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So Anna is a master of psychology of course of control student, which is actually how I had it written. So I had it written, right? Who specializes in support and healing of victims of high control groups and their families. She is also an apologist with Ratio Christi, which is an incredible organization nonprofit doing great work if you want to check them out too. So I asked Anna if she'd come back on and have this conversation with me because she did a presentation of a paper, which I believe is going to be your thesis topic, right? For this master's degree. Yeah. Yeah. That's why there there wasn't a specific publication because it should be published when it's finished and it'll be done in September of next year. Got it. So she did kind of a preview of it at the at ICSA, which is the International Cultic Studies Association, this past July, like July fourth, uh, July fourth weekend, end of June, and I got to hear that. It is posted on her YouTube channel if you want to check it out. Another thing that that will link below, but I loved it very much resonated with it, agree with it. And I'm like, this is a really great conversation to have. So I asked her to come back on and talk about this specifically with y'all. So to begin, I want to start with the struggle that is the intersection at times between the Christian faith and mental health. So sometimes mental health can be talked about within the Christian sphere as being more so secular as if it's maybe irrelevant, it doesn't apply. Sometimes it's looked down on. Sometimes it's seen as being sin or as maybe even being demonic in our more charismatic circles. So Anna, would you start us off by talking about your view on mental health and how we care for it? Yeah, it's a it's a silly civil war, but it is a civil war. And if you can imagine it that way, that's kind of the context that we see now, which is why you get different positions on mental health and just psychology in general in different churches. And everybody grew up with something different. And that was because it was contingent upon the personality of the preacher or the elders who were who were serving. And that's fairly normal. And so with the, the history of um, medicine, um, if I can wrap it up in a nutshell, it was primarily based, especially in America, in Christianity, which is part of the reason why we have Christian hospital systems to begin with. So out of that came in the 20th century, uh, a little bit of a rebellion. And that was that psychology and the realm of psychology was breaking off of clinical medicine, physiology into its own sphere of influence. And from there came the adoption of secular humanism as the philosophy that was trying to undergird um, the psychological practices of these clinicians. And it wasn't working. And we know that very, very well because it's an inconsistent worldview. And without getting into too much history, um, what had happened was the Christians went, well, wait a second. Like We do not practice medicine from any other worldview besides the Christian one anyway, and we can do that in psychology. And so two factions began. You have the biblical counseling side 
of the perspective. And then you have the clinical side, and then you have the integrationists which sit, who sit in the middle, who are like, we can have both clinical um, and the biblical counseling side together, but that takes an awful long time and a lot of clarifying. And so that's, that's basically where we sit right now. And depending upon which mental health provider you go to, their worldview should be something that should be pretty w- apparent to you at least. It used to be something that you can test and, and clarify. And so because of that, with different movements, especially in theology in America and American evangelicalism, dependent upon who's teaching and what's popular, um, and you'll notice that mental health as a topic is extremely popular right now, um, you get a lot of you get a lot of positioning and factioning and tribalism. And in our case and with the topic today, um, a complete and total aversion to anything even remotely close to mental health care and um, kind of the, the the ways in which we've established ethical boundaries for practice and the fact that those are being completely ignored by people who are not trained and don't even know that they're there. And they're functionally practicing medicine poorly without a license now under the guise of deliverance. And that's where my work is sitting is, is researching the impact of what that can do to a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I have this in a question, you know, further down on the list, but we can just allude to it now anyway. It's a really tough area to have movement because of really, really good safeguards that we have under for religion and our freedom to practice religion. And yet at times it can create these struggles. And we've seen this in other ways as well. I've seen it in like parachurch organizations where there's maybe unethical things going on. It's like, well, but they're safeguarded under them being a religious organization. And so it's like, well, they're not held to the same standard in the same way. And again, I'm not saying that I think that in and of itself is wrong or bad or that I would want to advocate for that overall to change. I'm not saying, yay, get the government more involved. And yet at the same time, there can be areas where if we're not stepping into like, wow, we really need to have integrity and have awareness of what we are doing and the possible implications of that for someone, then it just all starts to fall apart and then we're harming people by accident. And so it just, it gets really messy really fast. That's correct. So we call it the dark side of freedom of religion. And that's that people are then free under a religious perspective to functionally abuse. And there's no way to stop that without speaking out, which is what we, which is what we do, right? Every day as we take care of people who are abused in a religious environment. Mm -hmm. So should Christians seek out support for their mental health? So yes, like I believe wholeheartedly they should. Now it's fraught, obviously, like that giant introduction, if that doesn't scare away somebody from wanting to seek out, like how do you even start? How do you even test? All that stuff, I get it. Um, it's all it's all very, very difficult process, but that does not mean that you're, as an individual, that your mental health isn't extremely important and should be taken seriously. It is the driving factor behind your decisions and how you behave and how you see yourself um, and how you see the world. And of course, that should be something that we seek health for in a Christian, from a Christian perspective. It would be, it's a silly in my mind is, you know, asking, should we, should we go to the doctor when we put a nail through our foot? You know, it's like, well, yes, obviously, you know, well, should we go to a physician when um, we have a heart attack? You know, yeah. Well, what about when your brain gets sick? Because it can. You know, of course, you should seek out a clinician who could help you process what's going on so that you can heal and that you can move on. And to be clear, you can heal and you can move on. And this is just a season. It's not a permanent thing. We have to make sure that we're not letting what we see in movies drive our idea of what therapy looks like. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if you have that problem. I do sometimes. Like, no, yeah, there's, there's no fainting couch in my office. But we can put one in there if you need one. I mean, I'd love to come lay down and just chat with you. I mean, it sounds lovely. So we sit on the floor. I'm so happy about it. Your shoes are off. We sit on floor pillows. There are big blankets. Like, it's like a big sleepover. Are there snacks? Oh, absolutely. Snacks, coffee. I do willow bark tea. Oh, my gosh. We do it up. Oh, I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking about the really directive 
I think is the word I would use in scripture to love God with our minds. And that gets trickier to do if our mind is unwell. I mean, we need to take care of our minds in order to even, I think, obey that. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We don't expect somebody with the flu to get up and run a race. You know, it's when your mind is sick, it's part of your body too. And there's there's an impact that occurs when your mind is sick to the rest of your body as well. And so the, all these things have to be dealt with holistically. And I say that in the, in the sense that we need to keep in mind that we're taking care of a soul and a body and a mind, like all of it. And so all of these things, as they alter and get sick, can affect everything else. And if we look at it as a closed system that affects other things, then we can look at the person as a whole and not as little bits and pieces, which never really works in my mind. It's always a system and each one impacts all the other ones. I want to rabbit trail for a second. This isn't really the focus of our talk, but I thought it was worth mentioning. It seems like it fits here. And I don't know if we've had an opportunity to record on this yet. So what are your thoughts on prescription medication for this area? Do you have sort of a general stance that you hold to? I do. I have a general stance that we are free as Christians to pursue anything that natural revelation gives us, modern medicine and modern um, pharmacology included. So I do not have a problem with taking any medication for mental health. We just need to be mindful of what the cost is, how much we know or don't know about a new drug, um, and that we're mindful of, that we're just keeping track of the person and saying, hey, here's what maybe are secondary symptoms that are going to affect you. Do you actually want to live with these or not. Everybody has the right to self-determination. Some of these um, medications out there are miraculous. I mean, I would say they're, it's pure, they, and, and you may have experienced this too. In the mental health field, there are things that are very, very difficult to treat. And you, you, at some point you have to throw your hands up in the air and say, you know, it's entirely possible that this is chemical, that this is not, this isn't something that, that we can control through processing and making sure that we're identifying cognitive distortions. This isn't distorted. We, this might be chemical. And when those chemicals are balanced, it goes away. And that's beautiful. Like, how is that any different than keeping somebody like me who has a really, really bad endocrine disorder? Um, I could take medicine for that in order to make my endocrine system work. And it does. And now I can keep working. You know, I just, my body doesn't make some of the things that I need in order to function. So I take them instead. Like, that's wonderful. What an incredible gift. I could be dead, you know, and I instead I get to be here with you, you know, making this awesome podcast and taking care of people. Like there's a lot, there's a massive gift there. And pharmacology also has roots in Christianity. And I have a big, long lecture explaining that actually on the YouTube channel if somebody wants to review it. I completely agree with you. And sometimes it will completely take care of an issue. Like you've mentioned, it will completely solve what is a problem for someone's life. And other times I've seen it set the person up to engage in processing, cognitive processing, an emotional kind of more deep dive that they weren't otherwise able to do. And so then they're able to fly forward in all sorts of areas because this barrier has been removed. And so for us not to be open to that, whether it's a period of time or it's something someone needs to be on for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. I agree. There is, There are hardships in every generation and there are blessings in every generation as we look back throughout history. And we've got, we've got a mix of both here. When I think about technology, I'm like, it's a blessing. It's also something we have to be cautious with. There are all kinds of, you know, issues with technology and things. And gosh, uh, my addiction to TikTok could get real if I didn't watch it. <laughs> so there's things we have to... I love the cooking. I love recipes oh, yeah. and I, I actually cook oh, them. Yeah. It's so fun. But I'm like, I could scroll for an hour at night when I'm tired. I'm yeah. like, this is not a good use of my time. So, okay, we need some checks and balances there. We need to be taking a look at things. Like you said, medication can be such a gift. It can be such a blessing. And we have that now. And we didn't have it even in the same way 50 years ago. I mean, because we continue to have new developments, we continue to have discoveries and to hone things. And so 100%, like let's let's use these, yeah. these gifts that we have in our sure. 21st century. And in the same, on the same token, you know, we have to stop viewing humanity as, as, as emblematic or somebody or something that can be summarized. 
in like something like a TikTok, right? Because we deal with that a lot is that we're thinking too low level about this, like it's too low resolution. Um, there are, there's also the, the um, phenomenon of getting over prescribed things. And there are some things that cannot be treated with a pill like bereavement and grief, for example. There's no pill for that. That's something that has to be processed. Work has to be done. Tears must be shed. Lament must occur. Um, the injustice needs to be faced, right? That there's no medication for either. And so if we're honest about the complicated nature of each case and that you as an individual are worth pursuing how complicated this is, and that's a huge thing, right? How many of us have such low self-esteem that we think that, the, that it, we're not worth the time? That's half the problem. We are worth the time. You absolutely are worth the time. And, and the, the amount of work that needs to be done is worth it and you're worth it. Absolutely. So I want to jump over more to this uh, deliverance work like you had mentioned in the beginning. We've talked a bit personally about Sozo and similar forms of deliverance, quote unquote. I put that mm -hmm. in quotes. What are your concerns in regards to these kinds of interventions? Okay. <laughs> they are vast and broad now. <laughs> so I'll be completely honest. The first time I received a, a Sozo case that I was taking care of, I listened to what happened to them and I was like, that's wild. I will never see a case like this ever again. <laughs> and then... And then another one came and another one came and another one came and another one came. And I was like, oh my word, like what is happening? How could, how could something so structured happen? Like just like out of nowhere, it seemed like overnight. And so that's when we started doing a lot of the research into like where this came from and where Sozo was developed and the amount of like parapsychology stuff that it was based in and just, it was just, not, it was absolutely wild for, to me. And what happened was, and my greatest fear is that they have taken these individuals, these practitioners and the people who wrote this, um, they have taken a bunch of pseudo psychological tactics that are really, really, really outdated. And we know that with clinical training. So like things like um, and our listeners may not know, but there are things that you cannot do that we now know. So it, you, we used to believe that we could not grow any neurons. We now know we can because we can register them. We can see them grow um, and we can see their impact. So there's that element. We know that we cannot memory edit. We can only move memories. We did not know that before. Memory is not well understood yet. And so a lot of the, the features of um, medicine and like neurochemistry and the amount of things we don't know, these practitioners really don't know. They don't have any guidelines for walking into something that you know as a clinician, you, you're trained adamantly to make sure you remove yourself from the client's world in that moment as much as humanly possible because of how much impact you could have. And what Sozo does, and in fact, Deliverance as well, um, is they invert that. And instead, they insert themselves into the memory of the person and they interpret their memory for them, which is completely unethical. It is so unbelievably unwise and just, you can cause so much damage. It's just, it's, it's a nightmare case that I can see somebody who's trying to be well-meaning and believes that they're a prophet and they think that they're healing this person. And in reality, what they're doing is they're inserting themselves into the brain space of a very hurt person, interpreting material that they've never seen before. They don't have the rapport to do um, and they don't have the place to start interpreting, right? That's for, that's for self-investigation, not for the clinician to enter. Um, and because they don't have any of these boundaries, ethical boundaries, and because they think they have special knowledge from God, they are then speaking on behalf of God to this person, which means if they're wrong, they're wrong in an impact that is on a level that is existential to the person. It's not just, you know, Anna messed up in a session once. It's God informed me that this is how this is supposed to go. And that's that is a level of pain and damage that is, um, it's all close to unforgivable in, in, in an element here that's like, this is really, really bad. Like, really, really, really bad. You have done so much damage, I don't even know how to start 
figuring out how to back this up because now I'm dealing with complex post-traumatic stress disorder as opposed to um, a horrible trauma that was isolated. Yeah. 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 So I know I've told you I had Sozo done to me. Can I yeah. that? I did Sozo. I don't feel like I did Sozo. I feel like Sozo was done to me. And so I'm saying it that way kind yeah. of intentionally because it felt like it was done to me. Now, I'm not saying that as in I didn't have a choice. I signed up for it and I went and, and participated. But it's very much something that is done because of the control that the other people have. Oh, absolutely. When There's someone. No there's no real consent. You have to have full transparency to do that. And they don't do that by definition because you have to say this person's a prop, but we don't know what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> right. And so during the session, problem. which is right. And it's hours long. So first of all, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's mentally, emotionally, and therefore physically exhausting. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a very kind of bizarre situation anyway. I'm not gonna get super into the details. If people want to learn more of just like what is Sozo, I mean, I think we've done a decent job of just kind of giving it an overview, but I, I don't want to talk as much about what Sozo is as I want to talk about the issues with this or anything like this, because there's other examples that that we could give here too. So, but I think the biggest concern that I personally experienced, because I want to bring that into this conversation, having actually you know, lived it on that side myself, I think one of the biggest issues was I was expected to get really vulnerable with two people I had never met before, and I was never going to see them again. Yep. There There's was no zero before. aftercare. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. So you spend these grueling hours and then you leave. And that was problematic. I'm still talking more from like my therapist brain when I say that. When I kind of turn that part off and I come strictly from, you know, a, a client perspective, I think what was even worse was that I wasn't actually miraculously fine ongoing afterwards. And that was confusing to me because something supposedly happened in that session. And for me, it was like this door got closed. So this door got closed. Jesus was then on the right side of the door with me because apparently I was trying to close the door and I couldn't close the door, but it was because Jesus was on the other side of the door. So you don't really want to close the door anyway if Jesus is on the other side of the door, right? So anyway, we got Jesus on the right side of the door, supposedly, and then the door got closed. And so suddenly now, like I'm no longer grieving the the death of my parents, which was a very complicated, complicated grief situation. And I no longer wasn't was going to have identity issues based on having been raised in a cult. And all this stuff was supposed to be dead and gone. And now my relationship with my husband was going to be perfect. And all this stuff was was handled. Right. You know, we don't really have good precedence in scripture for miraculous healings of emotional pain. Right. <laughs> like we, we go, we go through these things. We don't have we have physical miraculous healings in scripture. We have, you know, and and whether that happens today or not is something that people land in different places on. But I'm like, mm-hmm. even then, we didn't have evidence for I'm struggling with identity based on my family lineage and what I was raised in and poof, there it is. Now I'm healed. I know who I am. I have no more questions, no more doubts. My pain is gone. My emotional, my feelings of loss and grief, like you already said, Anna, we have to walk through those emotions. Mm-hmm. We have to feel those things. We have to cry those tears. We have to go through those those pains. We have to have hopefully others to sit with us and accompany us along that journey. Well, that didn't actually work. And so then it made it worse because what on earth is wrong with me and my relationship with God? Why couldn't I keep it? Why couldn't I hold on to whatever amazing gift God had given me in those few hours? Why did I lose it? Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Yeah. Why did you lose it? Why did? Why is it so unclear? what Jesus is trying to do? Why is he only showing up now and not previously in the event that gave you the need for the Sozo session? Was it actually your fault then, whatever you went through, in the same way it's now your fault that you weren't able to hold on to your healing? And then on top of that, then you have to go back if you're going to go back, which is a big if, but if you're going to go back and there are levels, Sozo levels, 
well, then why is it that the prophets couldn't identify that I needed a deeper level of healing there? Why did I have to go through the first level? And then do you see what I like? And none of the actual event itself um, and the, the, the fact that other people played a part in that event um, is addressed. Everything is boiled down to you and your problem with your relationship with Jesus that is making that an event no longer something or uh, an event that you cannot heal from. And that's bogus. It's a lie. I, it's there's there are so many things that can play into all of these things. I mean, providence isn't even talked about. I, and then who are you imagining when you imagine Jesus on the other side of the door? Like, who is this? thing that shows up. Last I checked, none of us know what Jesus looked like. Who are you envisioning and how are they walking? You know, it's, it's all, it's like a giant, it's just a giant dumpster fire. And it's, I don't even know where to start because everywhere I look is another bad thing. And I know people, I think of one person in particular who would still say, and I don't know if they're holding on to it because it can be so hard. You all, um, some of you are going to get this, whether it's a dream that you've had that you believed was prophetic and it impacted the way you continue to live your life for a period of time, or you had a certain, you know, word spoken over you and you leaned into that and it really impacted mm-hmm. your identity or whatever it may be for this individual I'm thinking of. Um, it was a sozo experience and we can hold on to these things as being what we thought they were at the time, because if we let them go, then we were deceived again. And then we didn't really make the progress that we thought we had made. And that exactly what you already mentioned, Anna, that adds to the complexity of what someone was already suffering through, because now we've got to go back and let that go. And it's so, it's so unhelpful in every way. It, it is so unhelpful, specifically, I'm thinking right now of how strengthening it is to really walk through the process. Yeah. What it does for us through that journeying with God and with others, whether it's a support professional, whatever it may need to be for us. And it's strengthening. We really arrive somewhere. It it makes me think of like the the super fast bad diet where someone's like, oh, I'm just not going to eat and I'm going to fast for days and days and I'm going to drop those 10 pounds really quick. But then as soon as you drink water, and eat one carbohydrate, it all comes back. That is, that's not going to give you that real life-changing result as making changes in your diet and exercise regime, for example, or seeing your healthcare provider and whatever it may be to find out what, you know, you're, you're not getting enough of. And that's what I think of when I think of these sorts of ministries. Now, of course, they're way worse than that because of the existential attachment. But that similarity of we're not really learning anything. We're not really becoming more sanctified. We're not knowing God more. We're not knowing who we are to Him more. We're not gaining this this strength of character, this inability to be moved by the next, you know, wind that flies by. We're not getting that depth in our rootedness. All of this is being robbed from us because there's something instantaneously that's supposedly happening. Yes, and when we grow, when we grow and we go through um, therapeutic practices that are a lot longer, right? And we you're, you're you're moving through it's still structured, um, but you're actually facing what you're afraid of facing, or you're facing what you've never sat and really processed and looked at, right? In our office, we talk about um, the the armor of God has no back. We're we're designed to face what we need, our our potential enemy, and call it what it is, and then be able to determine once we've done that, the next steps forward. What happens in your brain, even on a physiological level, right, or even on an ontological level, if we're going to get really heady with philosophy, latent genetic code unlocks in those processes. You physically change your brain for the better. All of the potential you that is there in your genetics is what is then accessed when you process that way. It's in the facing of those things and doing it yourself that you see that you have an impact in your own life and that you are the hero of your life and that your relationship with the Lord is your relationship with the Lord. And it's in that space and that space of self-determination where those latent genetic codes are unlocked. You become a different person. And that person is stronger because of the process, which is the goal. 
the goal is to functionally make you not need therapy anymore. That's what a good therapist does. It's a season of strengthening and so that you can move on. And what Sozo does is it robs you of that process because not only are other people doing the strength training, right? They're informing you of what's going on, even though you don't fully understand what's going on. They are doing so on an existential level, which means they are standing in the place of God for you, right? You now have an intermediary between you and the Lord. And they're normally charging money for it, which means you've now turned the love of God into a transaction. That is, it's, it's massively abusive on every level of analysis. None of that is supposed to be that way. And then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And you're on your own to move forward. And you may have a sense of euphoria for a little while afterward. Mm-hmm. But well, it doesn't then, stick. Did they take notes? Because then you have to oh, be like, for me, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Take- You're right. I was yeah, sent home right. with like four pages of notes that didn't really make sense. It was kind of like reading a horoscope. Yeah. Like, where you can I, make so sense of it however you want, sort of. Notes. And I'm like, are they keeping the notes in a way that's HIPAA compliant? Because mm. now you have to sit there and go, is all of my, everything I was just the most vulnerable about that I even I have a str- struggle facing in my own life? is now in the hands of complete and total strangers. I mean, I've already seen it used in several cases as a form of blackmail. Oh, I believe that. I Absolutely. And they would, they would oh. leverage their Sozo files against them to keep them in line and to keep them tithing. Oh, 100%. What a perfectly manipulative setup. So yes, I was given my notes, so I will give them that. Um, okay. I was given my notes. It it became a little bit of a, like, that's what I was going to then because there wasn't any real direction at the end. So I was then going to the notes when I continued to struggle versus going to my Bible when I continued to struggle. And so there wasn't any clear direction on what to do with the notes, how powerful they should actually be considered. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, here you go, here are your notes, go on your way. And I have to say, from a very personal standpoint, and this was, how many years ago was this? Probably 10-ish years ago. It's been a long time. But at that time, I was really in like the depth of pain from losing my mom. And so to have these two women step in oh. as these godly women, right? You know where I'm going. Everyone's yeah. probably like, oh, no, right? Uh-huh. And to have them step in in that way, I mean, those notes were like, oh, there are older women of God who who know something about me, who were helping me, who were... And it was so easy to want to make them something they were not. And I'm not saying it's something they verbally claim to be, but again, practicing without actual training, you and I would know we were doing that because we're trained to be so careful and to be aware of such things and to avoid such things. And so very accidentally, I'll give them the benefit of the the doubt on that, they stepped on something that was so painful down the road and created more healing that had to be done. And I feel that for the, the, the guys that are the practitioners and like the little congregations. So one element that comes up is like when you're not in a, like a giant mega church Bethel context where you're dealing with complete strangers, sometimes you're dealing with people who have been told that they're prophetic inner healers and you know them. And then you're about to then go face the fact that you were just extremely vulnerable, possibly embarrassed. Um, and now you have to sit in church next to that person forever. You know, part of the part of the process with this, even with um, therapy, is to make sure that we refer out when there's a potential problem there. Like they're too close, you don't you don't become your family's therapist. You know, things like that. Um, that that it makes an extra element of complication. But on the on the other hand, and where where I was starting to go with this, the poor individuals who have no idea that any of this is unethical. Um, or that the impact of how, of what kind of damage they could have done hitting them now, I feel for them because you were functionally preyed upon by somebody who taught you someone, something unethical, and they were maybe preyed upon by someone who 
taught them something. And so now you have the extra complication of finding out after the fact that you may have perpetrated um, trauma in the lives of people that you are trying to care for. Like it's an entire other realm of awful. The whole thing is just awful. It is. And I do not, I think it's probably clear at this point, like I don't see it as this amazing intervention, of course. No. I do see it though as avoidant. And I want to just touch on that for a moment because for any of us who are in pain, any of us who are suffering in such a way that we would maybe look to Sozo as an intervention to consider, we, we're looking for help. We do need something. We do need someone. We need somebody to come alongside us. We need a better understanding of who God is and our relationship with Him, the problem of suffering, what we have gone through, how He intersects with that how the community is supposed to come around us, which they very likely have not done if we're talking about mine and Anna's context of religious abuse. I mean, there's just a lot going on here. Like there's a genuine need that the person has. And I understand why someone would be seeking, okay, what are my options? What's available to me? What direction do I go? And if they've heard what we talked about in the beginning about mental health and they're hearing that like, no, no mental health camp, and it's like, okay, well, this is what I have that's accessible, that hopefully is in alignment with my Christian faith. Exactly. But the reality of it is there isn't a quick fix to what we've all suffered through. And that's where I'm not saying it's intentional, like I'm going to avoid this and have avoidant behavior. But ultimately, there's this avoidance that happens because we're not going through the real journey that we've already talked about. And, you know, if I could have shortcutted some of it and still landed at the rootedness that I have now, I would have done it. Like, who wouldn't do that? Now, I wouldn't have done it if I wouldn't have gotten the rootedness that I have now because that's invaluable to me. I wouldn't trade that. But if I could have maintained that, absolutely. The truth is, it's not really what's offered to us. That's not really what's offered to us in Scripture. It's not what we see. Again, when we look at suffering, when we look at being steadfast, we look at the development of of character that leads to the hope that we have within us. And we we also, you know, there's good stuff in there too. There's joy and there is, you know, so we have good things. But focusing on the pain that we've gone through, avoidance isn't going to get us the result that we're actually looking for. It's just not possible. And are we implicitly teaching our congregants by developing frameworks that are like this, where you have some major trauma that happens in your life and we'll just go talk to the prophet, you'll get your special revelation and you'll be done. Does that not implicitly teach our congregants that they're not allowed to walk through painful seasons? Like, doesn't that imply that healthy Christians go and get this fixed? When in reality, like, don't most of us who've gone through some major trauma realize that that was the that was a moment that altered us so much that we are a different person now than we were before, and for the better. I I'm, I wouldn't even be in this field if it weren't for significant trauma. You know, it's like I'm not sure that we want to be implying any of that. The church is not a holy huddle of well and prosperous humans. It's a hospital. It's an emergency room where we're all together in the emergency room able to rest for a minute. Like, and there's- I just, the whole thing is just what? And there is such a beauty in the reality of it. Yeah. What is true, there's a beauty in what you're speaking to right now. And I see, I mean, I'm one of those crazy people, though, that like, you know, sees beauty in grief and I see beauty in loss. And I see, and I'm so thankful that I do. And that I came by that, honestly, I came by it through grieving. I see the beauty and what, what comes out of that as we journey through it, what God does with it. And again, I wouldn't trade the result. And so for people who are being told, this is the way to go, this is how you're going to, you know, achieve the result, this is sort of your quick fix, and then it doesn't actually work. And maybe you're out there and you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, maybe it hasn't really worked, but I'm hiding it because I don't want to share that it hasn't really worked because 
I, the blame's going to be placed on me. I'm mm-hmm. going to get told that my faith isn't strong enough. I'm going to get told that my, that my relationship. Yes, my relationship with God isn't good enough or strong enough, or I have unrepentant sin in my life, and that's why it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so I don't even want to come forward and share. First of all, a, a safe community is a community where you can be honest about what you're struggling with and what you're going through. And so if you do mm-hmm. not have that, please reach out to us because we are happy to step in that gap while you are continuing your search for it. But Anna, what do you think about this implication when someone is like, gosh, I've gone through it. I've gotten vulnerable. I've done the process. And yeah, I'm not changed, at least not long-term. Maybe I was changed for a little while, but I you know, lost it. Yeah. You didn't lose anything. What you did was you went through what was probably, probably not always though. And I'm not super cynical, but it's very often not a positive thing. It's a very malicious thing and predatory thing. So I want to be clear to everybody out there who experienced a predatory one too. But if you went through the the nice version of well-meaning people who are genuinely trying to help you, um, and you didn't hold on to your healing as it were, um, you are supposed to be able to tell the truth. Your Christianity is full transparency. That discomfort that you have means that something is really wrong. And I would rather you know that and be able to make an informed decision about how you proceed. And even with the pain of what that means for your environment, as nice as the people were, met, or were, were well-meaning and wanting to do that, um, that you can be well-meaning and sincere and completely wrong. And you do not have to shoulder the lies of other people in your life at all. You can tell the truth. And if you can bear whatever judgment comes upon you and get out of there, there are people who can help you process that. And please know it has absolutely, you You can't hold on to any healing. The healings that Christ actually brings are permanent and it's because he authors them, not you. So it's okay. We can call it what it is and actually do something about it once we know what it is. What boundaries do you think that churches and parachurch organizations should put into place to safeguard against this kind of undue harm within their congregation or their audience? I really, once something becomes so apparently accessible, I would like to see churches physically address it. Um, I'm getting really tired and frankly frustrated by indolence and I'm seeing it everywhere. And I say that in the sense of like willful neglect of things that should be said, but they don't want to because of whatever um, stirring will happen. You know, they just, all they want to do is just kind of be themselves. They don't want to say anything critical about what anybody else is doing that is doing it under the guise of Christianity. Um, I am to the point where I'm completely over that. Um, We have very, very terrible things being done in the name of Christianity. And if we don't say something, we can't teach people how to not fall into it. So I would, I, I, I very much, I would like to see churches have an active um, statement that says we are not in, we are not promoting um, the X deliverance t- style type thing. It doesn't have to be a big deal, but to let the congregation know that this place is safe because I'm needing churches who will do that so that I can send them congregants who have been hurt in that type of um, environment and they have nowhere to go because churches aren't as trauma-informed as I would like them to be. Um, And some of the best ones and the ones that I send the most people to are because they decided, you know what, we're going to take the time to be trauma-informed. We are not just going to blindly adopt something that sounds Christian and sounds good just because it's available and it's easy to reference. Um, so I would, I would really like to see a hard line in churches in America in particular, where this is rampant and it is rampant. This is not some little thing. This is everywhere. And churches who are really keying into, okay, mental health, we need to address it, which is good. They're like, we need to be of assistance. We want to help guide people. We want to be a, a support to them. We want to, we're recognizing that spiritual abuse is real and we're wanting to be of support to people and safeguard against that. And so I hear, I've been hearing this from more churches, which is so encouraging. And yet they're not well-informed 
and what to then do to accomplish the goal. And so what I'm hearing is they're bringing in services like this. And like, we've got hoping they could fix the fact that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's like, reach out, do the work, do the research, get, and it doesn't really matter if we hear, okay, it, it, well, it worked for these people. Well, maybe, maybe it sort of did something. I mean, I'm not saying it would never have any sort of, you know, a, a presumed maybe effectiveness. I would really question the longevity of it. Again, if it's, if it's going to be long lasting, if, yeah. So I'll leave that there for right now for the sake of time, but it's still not best practice. And Christianity, it's the best. It is what is true. And let's offer people the best that we can offer them. And so let's not just say, oh, well, somebody knows how to do that. And I don't know, they had a good experience. So let's now make that our our mental health support option here for our congregation. No, yeah. like go do the research, investigate, you know, talk to different people, find out what are the best practices that are out there that are really going to help the most people. Where did these things come from? You know, what are they rooted in? Do I agree with that? Is that problematic? Let's not just say, oh yeah, we want to start addressing this area. Oh yeah, you have an idea. Great, go do that. This is going to require more oversight. This isn't like a new volunteer program or, you know, I mean, we've got to have more oversight into what are best practices, what is the risk of harm that we're going to do. We have to take this super seriously. And so we're going to have to slow down. Our desire to do something is good. I want to encourage that. And I'm sure, Anna, you would as well. But we don't want to go so quickly with it that we then create another mess that now we've got to go help with that one. And the mess isn't just like clean up on aisle four. It's somebody's life. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's somebody's life that's going to go report to another congregation what was done to them and yours. And so if we're speaking to the leadership of these churches, I would rather you say, I don't know. I don't know what to do here and leave it to the individuals to go try to do their own research or decide or make mistakes or move forward or have something positive, leave it on the individual level and not on the church sanctioned level um, because you wanted to have an answer to a question you really didn't have an answer to. Um, And then at the same time, I want to say, look, y'all are handling spiritual giftings tests all over the place. Put on there, add the line that says a spiritual gift of discernment Get all of those people who said, yes, I've got the spiritual gift of discernment in your congregation together in a huddle and say, we need you to do research on Sozo. Like, I bet they'd be all over that and that at least we can have some like delegation because I, I can see I've, I've done church administrators, administration and management um, and mediation and all that stuff in seminary. Um, and I can see the like, we can't accommodate everything that comes through our door. Like we can't understand all that, uh, everything that, that's new and comes up with every generation. And I agree, there's there's a level of you know humility here that we're not going to be able to do that well with everything. But we can say, I don't know, instead of just adopting it when it's stamped with the, well, this is Christian or Bethel did this or whatever mega church with the numbers that you wish you had with yours employed this. So we're going to mimic them, which is more honest, I think, based on what I'm seeing about what's happening than that the research was done and they actually do think Sozo is a framework they want to answer God having permitted in their church. I think the starting point for everyone to just hold on to in their minds is to remember our modalities are not neutral. Mm -hmm. So be really careful which one we choose. Mm -hmm. What are some important next steps for someone looking for support in connection with their mental health? Oh man, well, being bold is a huge one. Um, That's why I work for y'all. Um, it's because it's, it, it, you, you have to have somewhere that somebody's going to stand there and go, all of this is really overwhelming. And we're going to take a minute to make it less overwhelming. And then we're going to reassess. Because part of your reaction to what all the things that are going on, that's going to change. And I don't know what the Lord's going to do with it until we can, we can actually categorize what's going on in your life and what you need and where to go and what's really going on. So at the very least, 
um, looking for somebody who can manage the history of this stuff so that you can determine the self-determination in your freedom as a Christian and in all of the freedoms that you actually get to enjoy on a secondary and tertiary level theologically where you personally sit. Because it's okay to hold differing positions on how much psychology we can use and which of the five camps of biblical counseling you sit in and who is your mentor and where do they sit and have maybe you've never seen any of this before. What's your perspective on medicine and who actually cares to sit down and do that Um the categorizing and the, the figuring out where you sit, because once you know what you believe, then you can be paired with somebody who is the next step on that track, meaning it's somebody who has been trained in that same perspective on psychology. There's a wonderful book. It's called Psychology and Christianity, Five Views. Um, that's a great place to start to get introduced to what's going on so that you can ask for the specific camp you want. So if you want a camp that's similar to what um, I'm talking about and what Naomi's talking about, that's the integrationist camp. And it's like camp number three, if I remember correctly, um, on a spectrum of what to do and how to engage modern medicine and the developments that happen with modern medicine in the scientific realm and the scriptures. So integrationists are free to use anything they wish in modern medicine and to incorporate and to study so long as it doesn't contradict the scriptures. And so we know those balances and we know where to tell you where things like, hey, this looks like a contradiction. Just be careful over here. Um, and this is you're free to do this. You know, there are things like that. There, there are clinicians who would avoid all of that entirely and view all of things that you're dealing with as a result of just personal sin and would try to isolate what those sins are and spend the entire session trying to do that. You need to know what you're signing up for. Um, these are all different perspectives and we can be respectful of your personal preference and what you believe and your relationship with Christ. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And help connect you from there. Exactly. Yeah. Final question. What are some key points from this conversation that you want to highlight for support professionals, therapists, church staff, et cetera? So people that hurt people are going to. Yeah. What should they be, if they're looking to help effectively, what are some key points you'd want them to walk away with? Yeah, for sure. You have to acknowledge the existential impact of this, the prophetic aspect to these um, deliverance sessions. You are not talking to somebody who was traumatized um, on just a human level. You're talking to somebody who has then had to process their trauma on what was presented as so authoritative a level that they're speaking to their creator. And so the impact of that trauma needs to be viewed by the clinician through that lens and more time needs to be taken on it because of that impact. Because even unconscious, um, the, the, the impact that, that, that may have occurred, they might not even be, your client might not even be fully conscious of how significant this was and how it altered how they view God. And so in being willing and open to investigate that further and to anticipate that that might be something that the, the conversation may go there. And very often clinicians are, they try to avoid existential questions entirely. You're not going to be able to be effective in their life in this really particular category of trauma unless you're willing to go to the existential levels that they need. 